Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Exodus uh, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed them him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented, and he did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? 
Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with the plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this passage. Um, As dark as it is, we pray that you would show us what this means for us today and how we are to live to honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're anything like me, um, then you might read the story of the golden calf and think, what on earth were they thinking? Right? How could these people be so incredibly stupid? I mean, just think about what the people have just seen, right? They've just come out of Egypt through the desert. Um, They had just agreed to do everything that God had told them to do, right? And yet, in this event, we see them doing the exact opposite, right? It just seems so unbelievable. How do I even relate to that, right? I can't see myself making an idol and bowing down to it today. Well, this morning, my hope is that as we dig deeper into this passage, that we'll actually see that it's not all that unbelievable, actually. Uh, That if we pay attention to what's going on, this story actually serves as a very real warning and reminder to us today. And so let's just quickly recap where we've been so far. Moses has spent 40 days, 40 days on top of a mountain ratifying the agreement to make Israel God's people, right? The the laws from 
the Ten Commandments. And then there were 43 other laws, more detailed laws on how Israel were to live out this radical justice and mercy to the oppressed. Moses has just received a blueprint to the tabernacle, this tent where God would meet with his people. Moses has received these special clothes to dress Aaron, the high priest, to be the priest of God's people. Right? The, the, the stage is set. So if we use the picture of this being all like a wedding, which a lot of commentators and scholars think this is um, a picture, that this is painting, if this is a wedding, then this really should be the climax of the happily ever after story, right? The people have said yes to God. They're preparing their vows, their wedding vows to God. God is laying out his plans for the honeymoon suite. He's getting his wedding clothes ready for himself and his people, right? And you can imagine if this is the picture, then just as the groom comes to celebrate new life with his bride, this story happens, right? What's this story? Now Moses had been longing coming down from the mountain. Right? If we remember from chapter 24, Moses stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. Again, that's a long time, right? 40 days and 40 nights. And if you looked up on that mountain to see where Moses was, what, what, what would you see? You would see the mountain being consumed by fire, right? The whole mountain covered in fire for 40 days and 40 nights. And so you can start to understand why the people might say what they're about to say, right? They go up to Aaron and say, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him, right? Now, a question for us to consider at this point is, they want to make gods to go before them, but who do they actually want to replace here? Right? If we read this verse, what comes to mind? Who are the people trying to replace? Well, there's actually a couple of ambiguous parts to this, simply, uh, uh, this seemingly simple verse. Uh, first, the word gods here might seem clear-cut to us, uh, translated into English, but uh, the word in Hebrew is just El, and at its core, El just means power, right? Uh, for example, in the book of Judges, uh, judges are sometimes called El, their powers, kings, are sometimes referred to as El as well. Uh, here, being used in the plural, we might get a sense that it is uh, pointing towards something of divine origin, perhaps. Right? Make a power that will go before us. That's what the people are saying. But what is this in response to? It is response to Moses not coming down, right? What is Moses' role? Moses stands as that mediator, that, that middleman between God and man. Moses is the one who they see leading them out of Egypt. Moses is the one that they go to when they have a request, when they're grumbling, and Moses speaks on their behalf to God. Moses is the one who takes the full, full brunt of God's glory, his holiness, and relays God's messages back to the people. And this is all because the people ask for it. Right? The people didn't want direct contact with God. See, after experiencing God speaking to them directly in the Ten Commandments, they plead with Moses. No, 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 Moses, you go. We'll stay here. You go up the mountain and talk to God, and then you tell us what God wants. Right? God is too overwhelming for us. 
if we hear from God again, we will die. No one can survive that. And so at this point, after 40 days and 40 nights of, of Moses being up there facing God in person, the rationale seems to be, see, we told you. No one can survive that. That's why you're stuck up on the mountain for 40 days. And so they say, we've lost this connection. This fellow, right, in the Hebrew again, is just this man. We've lost connection to this man who was our connection to God. And so we need to make a new connection. Not just another man. We need a power. We need an L who can stand between us and God. We can't just rely on man anymore. They can't survive. And so what happens? Aaron, the high priest, tells the people, all right, uh, give me your gold that your wives, your sons and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. You know, let's stop again. Because there's a point of irony here, isn't there? Why did the people want to build a calf again, right? They wanted connection with God. They wanted to replace what they had lost, what they thought they lost, because Moses wasn't coming back, right? And as they used this gold to craft a thing to connect with God, what was this gold meant to be used for originally? Does anyone know? Does anyone know? What was this gold meant to be used for? Just a few chapters back, it was the gold that God had told them to collect together to build his tabernacle, the connection between God and his people, right? This same gold, by the way, just as an aside, was the same gold that God miraculously made all the Egyptians favorable towards them as they left Egypt. They, they sort of stripped them of their gold as they left Egypt. And it was that gold that they were supposed to build a tabernacle with. But now, they're stripping it off themselves in order to build this golden calf. And so Aaron takes this gold and shapes it into the shape of a calf, fashions it with a tool. And after seeing this calf, they, which probably in this case means a, a bunch of leaders, a group of leaders that demanded Aaron do this, they said, these are your gods, right? These are your El, Elohim. This is the power, Israel, that brought you up out of Egypt. And again, I think there's ambiguity here that we might miss because straight away we might jump in and say, see, exactly, now they think this cow is their god. How can they be so stupid? But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, that's not actually clear cut because often gods have a calf, <laughs> right? The calf often represents the place where God would manifest, would appear on, right? It's a bit like a, a throne, if you think about um, it, maybe in today's language, right? Rather than being the God itself. But the thing is, again, if we look back just a couple of chapters, God already has a throne, doesn't he? It's the Ark of the Covenant, the two cherubim on top. That's where God's presence will come down in order for God to meet with the high priest and his people. And so with this ambiguity in mind, first they want a power to replace Moses as the middleman between God and the people. They create a calf which might be creating a throne for God to manifest on for the people. You might be able to argue, hey, look, the people just want what God wants here, don't they? 
they need a connection with God. They want a connection with God, and they think that their connection with God has been severed. Moses is not coming back, they say. And so they want what God wants, right? And so what happens next? Aaron sees this calf that comes out of the fire, or he makes, and he builds an altar in front of the calf and announces, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Again, are those ringing any bells? A festival to the Lord? Because we've heard that already again, haven't we? Yes. Again, just a couple of chapters before. After the long lists of commandments, the Ten Commandments first, and then the long list of 43 other commandments, where does it end? It ends with a command to celebrate festivals to the Lord. But what's the difference? When God told them to celebrate, they were at set times. Celebrating coming out of Egypt, celebrating the the harvest, the ingathering of the crops. But now, the people are just doing it willy-nilly. They're doing it according to their own schedule. Even here, you might be able to argue, look, okay, they're not doing exactly as God wants, but surely they're, they're still doing in essence, you know, celebrating God, right? What's the big deal? And up until this point, I don't know if you've noticed, but God doesn't actually get angry yet, right? God doesn't actually come down from heaven to stop them. And you would think, that's weird, because this seems like rock bottom when it comes to offending God, spitting in God's face in the worst possible way. How much worse can it actually get? But God doesn't actually get angry yet. He waits till the next day. What's the next day? They begin their celebrating. Verse 6. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And if we read on, it is at this point, verse 7, that tells us that God has had enough. This was the last straw, right? And you're, you're wondering, what, really? This is the point? God waited a whole night after the golden calf, and when they celebrate, this is the point that God gets angry? Well, we might then ask the question, you know, what's happening now? What, what's different, right? Who are they sacrificing to? God's not down there. God's still up there in the mountain. The fire is still up there on the mountain, right? And so maybe this is the point in which they stop seeing the, co- the calf as this connection between God and the people. And, and maybe this is the point where they say, this cow is our God. I, I don't know. But there's one last bit here in this verse that gives us a hint. After they sat down to eat and to drink, they got up to indulge in revelry. That last phrase, they got up to indulge in revelry. That's a big clue. Because that word revelry is a very rare word that we see. And when we do see it, it refers to something dodgy going on, particularly with sexual overtones. And so some translations might say the people got up to engage in sexual immorality. Now, why might this be a big deal for the Lord? Well, I think now we actually get the final piece of the puzzle of these chain of events and where it has finally led up to, right? This is the climax. And that is, we now get a complete picture of Israel doing pagan worship, right? That's exactly what everyone else did. 
right? A golden calf, a symbol of God's presence. Now perhaps even becoming, in their eyes, the actual manifestation of God himself, right? Something that God, remember, told them never to do. They're having festivals at a time of their choosing, right? Why do people have festivals? In order to provoke God, to get God to do what they want at their own time. You know, if you want it to rain, well, you hold a festival and you, you make it rain, right? You, 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 you twist God's arm to do what you want the gods to do. They're sacrificing in ways that ignore God's word, and now they're engaging in sexual immorality. See, from archaeological evidence, we, we know, from history, we know that the ancient world was full of temple prostitutes. Right? This is the idea that with all these gods out there, you would somehow engage in sexual immorality at the doorstep of the temple. Uh, the idea is, is quite sick, actually. You, you arouse the gods to make them happy with you, and so you get to tell them what to do. But guess what? God actually has something to say about sex when it comes to worshipping Him. Does anyone know what, what that might be? Does anyone remember what God says about worship and sex? Anyone? It's don't do it. <laughs> don't mix sex with worship. In chapter 19, after a lengthy description of how the people are to prepare themselves for the Lord, right, coming down to the mountain, as he's about to deliver the Ten Commandments, what does he say? What does Moses say? Prepare yourselves for the third day. That is the day the Lord would appear. Abstain from sexual relations. Now, God is not anti-sex here, right? Sex within marriage is a good thing. But remember, in context, they're about to meet God in a manner of speaking, right? Remember what the people would have come to expect as part of that ancient context, right? They might be thinking in their heads, oh, do, do we need to engage in sexual immorality so that we could uh, get God to listen to us and get God to appear? And so God is not even just saying, don't, don't appoint a, a temple prostitute, prostitute as you come to worship. It's don't even have sex with your spouse right before meeting the Lord. God does not want to be anywhere remotely near compared to what the other false nations, the false gods of the other nations are doing. But now the people ignore that. They celebrate by committing sexual immorality. Right? That's going beyond just sexual relations with their spouse. Israel's idolatry, Israel's rebellion against God is now total and complete. How do we get here? And here's where I want to stop and consider how this might speak to us today. Because I don't want us to think that this whole golden calf story is just too ridiculous to even imagine that we could ever do such a thing, right? That we are, you know, immune <laughs> to such folly, into going into such a downward spiral. But I want us to be, to be clear that actually we might be susceptible to a similar downward spiral if we're not careful. And so I just want us each to consider a few steps that occurred during the course of this story and see whether we ourselves might have similar struggles or similar uh, experiences with this. And so let's start at the beginning. How does it start? It basically starts with fear, doesn't it? It's fear and a lack of trust in God. See, things didn't turn out the way that an anticipated. Forty days and Moses was still not here. What are we going to do? 
instead of looking back at what God had already done for them, right? Providing water in the desert, meat in the desert, raining from the skies, right? The, the really powerful, miraculous judgments on Egypt. Instead of looking at that, they say, uh-oh, we better take matters into our own hands. And let's just stop and think for ourselves, right? Am I someone who is quick to jump into panic mode when things don't go right? That I'm just not great when it comes to patiently waiting for the Lord. That we are quick to quickly jump into action, rush a big decision without first coming to God in prayer, without consulting our brothers and sisters and asking for advice, without reading God's Word and, and really trying to figure out what would God want me to do in this situation, right? In my moment of crisis and panic, where do I turn? Is it to God or is it myself? That's the first step of this downward spiral. But next up, what do we see? We see that even if we are generous, right? Even if, if we say these people's motives, motivation is good, right? They're still trying to connect with God. What is the problem? The core problem, I think, is that they simply haven't taken in God's Word. They've heard God's Word. They've said yes to God's Word, but they're not living it out. And at this point, what am I talking about when it comes to living out God's Word? It's simply the Ten Commandments. They haven't even heard the 43 other laws that Moses is speaking to God with at the moment. The Ten Commandments, that's all. And yet they're still not living it out, right? And this is, I think, perhaps the scariest thing as I read this story. Because even what it looks like that they have good intentions, but if it is done, if we have good intentions, but we do it in a way that ignores God's words, if we fail to live out God's ways that He has revealed to us, then those good intentions quickly spiral out of control, don't they? And on a church level, it could be like, look, maybe our goal is to get as many people into church as possible. That's a great goal, right? But then we don't bother trusting that the gospel itself is enough and we tack on other things to attract people in our building, right? We start distorting the gospel maybe because we want to make it sound as appealing as possible. Right? That, that's my, what it might look like on a, on a church macro level. But I want us to stop and think again, what about on a personal level? Right? Are we seemingly do, looking like we're doing the right things on the surface? Do we have good intentions with the things that we do as we meet together every Sunday, uh, as we give to church and so on? But the question really for us is, are we hearing God's Word? Not just listening to God's Word, not just doing your five to ten minutes of quiet time every day, but are we paying attention are we allowing God's Word to sink deep into our hearts? Are we allowing God's words to marinate within us and allow it to transform us from the inside out? Right? Or is reading God's Word just something that we do as we listen to sermons like water off a duck's back? Okay, we've done that. Okay, next thing on our list. Because something else happens here in the story because they don't listen to God's Word. And that is they simply follow the pattern of the world around them when it comes to worship, when it comes to living out God, uh, living out lives to God. 
And of course, our, our worship isn't just limited by what we do on Sunday, right? Our whole lives is worship. We live under our Lord. That, that is worship. And while the whole world around us aren't doing things that we might label as clearly anti-God, maybe that we are, right? The world is not trying to tempt us into building a cow to, to bow down to, but there are so many other subtle ways that the world is pulling us to live contrary to God's Word, isn't it? Contrary to trusting in God. Messages like, don't tell us, don't let anyone tell you what to think. You just do whatever feels right to you, right? Be guided by your passion and desire. You do you. You might even hear some people just say, you know, God gave you that desire, so you know, God might want you to do that. If you, if you enjoy something, just keep doing it because you're worth it, right? As opposed to hearing God's words out. Listen to Paul say, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became a Jew, to win the Jews. To the weak I became the weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I don't know if you guys ever thought like I did when I was working at CBA several years ago. Um, I was working as a data analyst, and I would sometimes think to myself, look, wouldn't it be so much easier to have an impact on the gospel, right, at work if I was just a little bit further up the food chain instead of a, just a lowly analyst? If I were a manager, maybe a senior manager, then people would hear me out. People would realize that I have something important to say, right? It's a really subtle thing. But I was being led by the ways of this world, that you somehow need status. You need power in order to be effective for the kingdom of God. That if I was still stuck as a lowly analyst plugging away on my computer by myself, then I'd be completely useless, right? I wasn't trusting in God to use the weak in order to prove God's power. Or maybe our, our moral compass, our sense of right and wrong are more easily persuaded by the world's standards than the Bible's. Look, everyone does this, right? What's the big deal? Get with the times, guys right? Why can't the church just move on? Are these places that you need to stop and reflect on yourself? Am I being conformed to the world because I'm not paying attention to God's Word? And I'm just going to throw in a bonus step four here. And it's not really a step in the process, but it's more of an overarching heart issue with Israel in the story. And fundamentally, the people don't want to worship, I am who I am, right? I am is the name that God has revealed to the nation of Israel, right? And basically, you know, just to give a brief summary, I am is a name that is, by definition, undefinable, right? It's a name that says, you cannot fit God into a box. I am who I am. I will be who I will be right? God is who He is, end of story. Because you can't imagine what the people, you, you, sorry, you, you can imagine what the people felt during the time in the desert, right? God just seemingly randomly rains down bread from heaven six days and then arbitrarily withholds it on the seventh day. God doesn't, you know, provide water in a very steady, predictable way, but they go on for long stretches without finding any water, and then suddenly they come across a rock and boosh, all this water comes out. 
The God that they worship isn't like all the other gods who does things so differently. God just appears in a cloud, right? They suddenly take our leader Moses up onto a mountain surrounded by fire for 40 days and 40 nights. God is so unpredictable. And so you can imagine them thinking, you know what? Wouldn't it be nice if God was a little bit more predictable? What if I introduce an element of control back into my relationship with God? Let's make a calf, a throne that we can make God sit on, that we can easily move God around in, you know? As we travel in the desert, why not we move God around instead of following this God that moves us around? Let's make God something that is tangible, something that's physical for me to bow down to, to wrap my head around. Let us hold festivals whenever we want and have fun, engage in the things that we want to do whenever we want to do. Let's worship like all the nations around us. We want an excuse to indulge in sexual immorality and call that serving God. We don't want I am who I am. We want a God that we can control, a God who does what we want him to do. Let's stuff God in a box so that we can understand and we can handle him. So again, a question for us. What is our reaction when we come across a side of God that we don't like, maybe we don't agree with, right? Could be in the Bible. Man, that sounds really unfair. That sounds sexist. I feel so ashamed to read that. I hope no one, none of my friends I'm trying to evangelize ever read that. What do we do with that? Do we just write it off? Nah, God was wrong to say that. Do we just ignore what we just read as if it was not part of the Bible? Or... Or do we say, God, you are who you are. I'm not God. You are God. Help me to humbly understand your word and what it means. Even if I don't fully comprehend your word in this passage, help me to accept that you are God and I am not, to keep trusting, to keep wrestling with your word. It doesn't mean that we just give up and say, oh, yeah, that's just what it is, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to accept it, right? It means that we have to dig deep, right? We have to do research. We have to ask questions, right? And what is our reaction when God throws a curveball in, in our lives? I think the last time I was here, I was preaching on Psalm 88. You know, things don't always go according to plan. God can hit us with things that devastate us. When tragedy strikes close to our heart, what do we say? Do we have the faith to say, Lord, I have no idea why you're doing this. Lord, I might be angry at you. But Lord, you are God. I am not. Help me to keep trusting you in my pain. Are we people who fully accept what it means to follow the God who is I am who I am? Now, as I close, I want to do something controversial here, and I hope you won't blacklist me as a guest preacher going forward. But what I'm going to do is I'm actually not going to wrap up this sermon in grace. Right? And again, if you are new to Christianity, if you haven't yet um, fully understood <laughs> what the gospel means, if you're still trying to figure it out, I don't want you to leave here saying, oh, this is all about sin and, you know, you know you're, you're going to be condemned and all that. That's not what I want to say, right? Because we do need to remind ourselves that we live in grace. There's more to the story. Keep coming back, please. Listen to Pastor Mikey speak to the other aspects of this wonderful gospel that we proclaim.
Yes, we are forgiven in Jesus. Yes, the victory is ours in Jesus. No, we don't earn our salvation by doing good things. It's not about being good enough. No, I don't want us to leave here feeling guilty and ashamed of all our failings. But even as I say that there is grace in view, I want us to keep this reminder brief because, yes, grace will come in Exodus. At the end of the golden calf story, there is grace. But as we read the golden calf story, I just want us not to dismiss it and jump straight to grace. To say, this is so ridiculous. I could never do that. As we leave here today, can I get you to just see how dangerous it is when we don't wait on God patiently? To see the downward spiral that is set off if we don't take in God's word and live it out when we follow the ways of the world. And I want you to be hit with the end result of what happens when we don't recognize God as the I am who I am. And so maybe for today, maybe for this week, maybe even more, let us be serious about living holy lives to our Lord. Let's pray. Our holy, righteous, and good God, Help us to be people who see your holiness, to see your goodness, to see what you have done, your power, your grace towards us, all of that, and not take it for granted. By your Spirit, we pray that you would help us to be people that honor you, that would be a true light to the world and not just simply follow in the world's footsteps, doing what they keep telling us we should be doing. And even as we remember grace, that it is all on Jesus on the cross, help us, Lord, to have this big burden of wanting to live rightly for you, that everything that we do honors you and gives you glory. Please do this in Jesus' name. Amen.